are dog lovers. Any dog lovers here? Dogs do some things better than people, don't they? Quite a few things dogs do better than people. But the one thing that I'm thinking of is that most dogs have a far better sense of smell than people do. And there's actually a physical reason for that. The, the sinuses of humans uh, have somewhere around 6 million receptors that can sense odors in there. Now, that sounds a lot, doesn't it? 6 million. But by contrast, your average beagle has more than 300 million receptors there in his snout. That's about 50 times more cells for smelling. The, the dominant sense through which most humans perceive the world is through our eyesight, isn't it? But the dominant sense by which most dogs perceive the world is through their nose. A human can walk down the sidewalk and maybe you'll sense or perceive a faint aroma of flowers a few feet ahead, but a dog walking that same sidewalk picks up every trace of every other dog, every other animal, every other whatever it might be that has been in that area. Well, just as dogs and people have different levels of ability to perceive smells, people have differences in their ability to perceive things as well. You might think about it this way. Some people are much better than others at hearing. Some people have a greater ability to sense emotions in others. Some people have a, a better ability to intellectually understand and process things that they read. Most important of all, though, is that some people have a greater ability to perceive things spiritually and morally because they are more open to God's work in this world. Not all people have the same ability to understand spiritual truth because not all people desire to explore spiritual truth. Today, we're going to explore some teaching from Jesus that helps us to understand this process of spiritual perception. The teaching is in the form of a parable using pictures from ancient farming in the first century to help expose Jesus' listeners to his key spiritual truth. Now, I'm going to just take a shot here and say that most of us gathered here today are not farmers, but we are well aware that farming has really changed over the years, hasn't it? Tractors today are guided by GPS systems with uh, sub-inch accuracy so that no section of soil is missed, no rows are overlapped, seeds are precisely inserted into prepared soil along with a scientifically measured shot of insecticide to combat the pests. Pretty high-tech stuff. Now, there are still some farmers who use horse-drawn planters and probably even a few who still plant crops by hand. But for the most part, it's a high-tech game. But in Jesus' time, farmers used a very different and unique method for sowing seed that we're going to talk about in just a few moments. Let's look at Mark chapter 4 as we explore what is called the parable of the sower. And we're going to start right there in verse 1, which gives us the setting. It says, again, Jesus began to teach by the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. 
And so we have the picture there of Jesus sitting off the shore, a large crowd listening to him. We know that Jesus taught in the synagogues, but he also loved to teach by the seashore. I love that Jesus used different methods without changing the method. Isn't that cool? And by the way, that's something we need to be prepared to do as well. We need to be willing to do the same thing. Use different methods, but the same message of the gospel. What worked some years ago might not work today. And so we need to be open to that. Jesus certainly was. Well, this crowd is large. And so Jesus gets into a boat and he pushes a bit offshore. It was common in Jesus's day for teachers, for rabbis to sit while the students listened. The crowd is fanned up uh, uh, along a, a hillside. Um, archaeologists today think they found this very place where Jesus taught by the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. And this natural amphitheater that's there where they could sit and see him very clearly. It's been estimated that particular area could hold up to 10,000 people on that hillside where they could give attention to Jesus as he taught. In verse 2 it says, and he was teaching them many things in parables. Now the word parable literally means to throw something beside something else. And it has the idea of placing two things side by side together in order to teach a spiritual truth. The way that I teach it to kids so often is that a parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. And it helps us to picture in reality something that we can see and touch and feel, that which might be a bit abstract. And so in our parable today, Jesus takes something that would be very familiar to his culture, farming, and he applies it to this unique spiritual truth. One commentator said this, and I like it. He said, parables are like mental time bombs designed to be unforgettable and then to explode into meaning for those who are serious about listening to the Lord. I thought that was a great, a great quote. Uh, there are approximately 35 parables found in the Gospels, but we're looking at this one today in Mark chapter four. So let's now drop down to verse 10. And in verse 10, it says, when he, Jesus that is, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. So apparently Jesus has spent some time by the seashore teaching this vast crowd, telling these stories, these parables, and now he gathers with those closest to him, those who are most interested, most invested, most desirous. And they say, Jesus, tell us more about these parables. And I love how Jesus taught publicly, but then he explained what he meant privately. And it occurred to me, that's kind of a good model for us. Sometimes we gather publicly like we do today in church. But we also need to meet with Jesus privately in order to grow. And so are, are you looking for that time in your life, that private time where you can take maybe some of the truths that are uh, uh, explained here in church or, or wherever you might be reading and then asking the Lord to explain them to you more fully. A great model for us. Uh, so in verses 11 and 12, then Jesus gives us two purposes of this parable. And the first thing that he says is that the parable reveals. If someone is open, Jesus says they will understand the secret of the kingdom of God. Isn't that a great phrase? The secret of the kingdom of God. Do you know that if you know Jesus, 
that Jesus introduces you to the secret of the kingdom. Things that people outside of Christ don't fully understand. But then parables also do something else. They also conceal. And that's because if someone is closed, if they're hardened, they will, as Jesus says, indeed hear but not understand. It's kind of like the adults in the Charlie Brown cartoons. Remember those guys? Wah, 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 wah. You can hear them, but you can't understand. In other words, we receive what we are receptive to. If you're not open today, right now, then you're probably not going to get much out of this sermon. Only those with receptive hearts will receive what God wants to reveal. Now, in verse 13, it tells us that if we understand this parable, that we'll be able to understand other parables as well. Look at Jesus' words. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So it sounds like we better pay attention so that we can understand the parables. Now, fortunately, we don't have to guess the meaning of the message because Jesus, in the text today, provides an interpretation for his disciples and for us, beginning in verse 14, when he says, the sower sows the word. So Jesus transitions from telling an everyday story, an earthly story, and he's about to teach us a spiritual, a heavenly truth. Now, most of those 35 or more parables that Jesus uh, shares in the Gospels have one overall meaning and a lot of side applications that we could make. And so, as I was preparing this message this week, as I was thinking about what, what, what's the meaning, the main meaning of this particular parable, here's what I came up with. I want you to read it together with me, this, this statement. Let's read it. When the seed of the gospel gets into our heart, amazing growth will happen. That's kind of what occurred to me. And so that's going to be our theme for today. When the seed of the gospel gets into our heart, amazing growth will happen. So let's look at verse 3. Jesus begins telling his story. And he says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Now, right away, I want you to notice something. Jesus wants them and us to lean in and listen. That's his first word, right? Listen. Behold, then, he says. That word behold is like saying, heads up, focus. Give me your attention right now. Jesus is saying, I want you to get this. Now, everyone back then understood how sowing worked. I wonder, perhaps, maybe even as Jesus is sitting in the boat, as he sees the people on the hillside there, maybe off in the one direction or other, maybe there's a farmer out there sowing seeds. And that brought to mind, Jesus thought, this is a teachable moment. This was a familiar story. In Jesus' day, a farmer would have a pouch across his shoulder, and he would have it filled with seed, and he would walk down the paths that were carved out in the fields, and he would fling out that seed one way and the other as far as he could. The seed would be broadcast, if you will, into all sorts of soil. Some of the soil's good, some of it's bad. If I was walking down here today, I'd fling it out this side to the good side and this side to the, well, not the bad side, the other good side, the other good side. <laughs> so Jesus is using this very, common picture to help the people understand 
what is happening here. The farmer's goal, of course, was to get his good seed into the good soil so that it would become good crops. The seed is very small and yet powerful. It has life in it, and it would produce crops if the conditions are right. But it must be planted in the good soil in order to achieve its intended purpose. Let's just kind of stop here for a moment and make a personal application. Do you ever wonder how someone that you love so much can hear and be exposed to the truth of God's word and yet be resistant or not interested in all at God's word? Does it bother you when someone seemingly makes a decision to follow Jesus, they get all excited about it, only to end up drifting away? when hardship or disappointment comes? Does it trouble you at all when people you see get so wrapped up in the worries and the stresses and the stuff of this world that they kind of just bottom out spiritually? What's up with all that? The bottom line in these situations is that true spiritual conversion may never have taken place, even though it appeared like it did. And the problem was with the soil or with the soul, not with the seed and not with the sower. And so as we explore this passage a little more in depth this morning, I I, want to encourage you as as I work through this to ask yourself, what kind of soil represents your heart? In essence, this morning we're going to kind of do a personal spiritual EKG, a heart checkup, all right? And so here's how we're going to respond. We're going to take a look at each soil individually in verses 4 through 8. And then we're going to drop down after we look at each type of soil. We're going to drop down to verses 15 through 20 and see how Jesus uh, ties the soil type to what I'm calling a heart type. Those four soils represent four different responses to the Word of God. And it's our privilege to spend time looking into the parable, to hear how Jesus interprets and applies it. And by the way, that is the right way to study the Bible. We begin with observation. What does it say? Then we go to interpretation. What does it mean? And then we end with application. What's the lesson that I can live out today? Because when the seed of the gospel gets into our heart, amazing growth will happen. So let's look at the first heart condition that Jesus addresses, and I'm calling it the hard heart. Look at verse 4. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Now, fields in Israel were small, and they were separated by one another by paths that were traveled very frequently, and so they became very hard, almost like concrete, from all the people, all the animals that were walking on them. And so the seed that hit that very hard ground would just sit there. And of course, the birds would swoop swoop in and have lunch. In, In our world today, it would be like throwing grass seed out on your sidewalk in front of your house. There's no grass that's gonna come up there. But the birds will appreciate you providing that. So Jesus interprets this first soil down in verse 15. Jesus says, And these are the ones along the path 
where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. That phrase, takes away, it literally means to seize with force, to steal, to rob. Notice that, by the way, Satan does that immediately. Remember, that's Mark's favorite word. He loves that word immediately. Satan swoops in, just like a bird would come down when you threw out the seed. Down, grab it, and off they go. That's how Satan works in our lives. He loves to bring confusion and then to steal away the truth when the gospel is communicated. And so we need to ask ourselves, is my heart hard? Do I ever feel cold or calloused? Have the feet of others beat me into a hard place? How about you? Have you been trampled upon? Are you holding on to pain? Has bitterness put you in a bad place? Have you been burned in the past? Maybe even by a church. And so you're locked. Your heart is locked in a vault. It's hard because you don't want to be hurt. You know, Mark Twain once made this statement. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bothers me. The parts that I do understand. How about you? How does your attitude compare with his? Are you open? May we not allow the hardness of this world, and there's a lot of hardness in our world, we cannot allow that to block, to block the reception of God's word because when the seed of the gospel gets into our heart, amazing growth can happen. Well, there's a second heart that Jesus addresses, and we're calling it the hollow heart. The second soil is described by Jesus in verses 5 and 6. He says, Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Now in that part of, of, uh, of uh, the Middle East where Jesus was, much of the land is very hard, solid rock almost, with just a very thin layer of topsoil. And so in some places, if it wasn't really cultivated, the sun would heat that rock that's underneath the soil, and that would keep the soil warm, and the seeds like that, they would germinate, but then, because there was no root system, when the sun really began to burn, those plants would just wither up and die. When these people hear the message of Jesus. They're like people who become very excited, very emotional. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Oh, that's awesome. I'm all about Jesus. I'm on team Jesus now. The soil looks ready. But the problem comes when problems come. Does that make sense? The problem comes when problems come. Because of their emotional enthusiasm, their roots don't go down deep enough. As we see in verse 17, Jesus says, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
As soon as difficulties come, they ditch their superficial spirituality. And so we could say a person like this has a hollow heart. Behind the emotional fervor is really an empty faith. We might today call it convenient Christianity because the person likes the idea of forgiveness, the idea of heaven, of grace, of mercy, of receiving God's favor, but perhaps they don't want any responsibility. And so this individual is controlled by feelings, not by true faith. Or maybe the fault lies with an empty, hollow presentation of the gospel that was superficial to begin with and focused on things that are really not a part of the gospel. Things like being healthy and wealthy. That's a vast message that permeates American Christianity today. And it is a hollow message. Benefits are promised without the idea of a cost ever to be counted. A shallow gospel can lead to a hollow response. You see, friends, Christianity is not about sustaining some sort of emotional high, about feeling good all the time. Instead, instead we are to be deeply rooted in God's truth. Notice that Jesus doesn't say if tribulation or persecution comes, but when it comes. The word tribulation, by the way, has a background in farming. It's the same word that, has, that is used of the, the big rolling stone, the threshing stone, they called it. They used to roll it over the grain to, to uh, smash the grain, to get off the husks. And the word literally means to crush, press, squeeze, or break. And Jesus says, sometimes we're going to be pressed and crushed and squeezed and broken. And if our roots are not deep, we won't be able to sustain the pressure. Trouble and tribulation will come. And if we trust in Jesus, then those hardships will strengthen true believers. So, again, personal application. Did you have an emotional experience perhaps sometime in the past? And maybe now you find yourself just kind of going through the motions. Were you happy about Jesus at one time, but now you say, I just kind of feel hollow. Have problems come up with your job, your family, stress from the world, from health, whatever it might be? Inside, are you angry? Because you're thinking, I didn't sign up for this, God. You see, when we focus only on the benefits without counting the costs of commitment, we run the danger of having a hollow faith. But when the seed of the gospel truly gets into our heart, then amazing growth will happen. Well, there's a third heart issue that Jesus addresses, and that uh, is what I'm calling the hindered heart. The hindered heart. Seed falls on the third kind of soil only to be choked out by the weeds. Jesus describes it this way in verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. The seed is strangled by thorns and thistles and it ends up producing no produce. 
Have you ever heard of the kudzu vine? The kudzu vine was introduced into the United States from Japan in 1876 as part of an ornamental plant exhibition in Philadelphia. The kudzu vine then was subsequently promoted by the federal government during the Great Depression as a useful way to slow soil erosion. And so they were planting this stuff all over. But then it got completely out of hand. I was reading about this kudzu vine. It says that roots can grow up to 20, the roots now, the roots can grow up to 20 feet long and five, five inches in diameter. And unless the root is dug up and killed, the plant will survive. The kudzu can grow 16 inches in a day and as much as 100 feet in one year. It's said that it spreads so fast that you can actually watch it grow. I don't know if that's true or not. That picture looks like it though, right? That's all kudzu everywhere there. And so uh, the, the, the vine now covers an estimated 7 million acres in 13 southeastern states. I don't know. I don't, do we have this in Oregon? I don't know. Is it here, Martha? You've seen it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Dr. Jack Tinga. You see it, you run. Really you run. Okay. Hey, that's coming up right here, Martha. You're ahead of me. Dr. Jack Tinga, University of Georgia, he's a leading authority on the kudzu. He's even received calls from Hollywood producers who wanted to make a horror movie about this particular vine. <laughs> but Dr. Tinga says, it's no joking matter. If you come across a kudzu vine, simply drop it and run. You're right, Martha. Run away from that stuff. So, that's an illustration for us to think about this idea of the weeds choking out our life. Jesus interprets this particular little section in verses 18 and 19. He says, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So I want you to notice in the text here, Jesus lists three things that can hinder a heart and keep our faith from becoming well-established. And the first is what Jesus calls the cares of the world. The cares for the world. It's the same word that we get our English word anxiety from. This person is so caught up with the worries and concerns and stuff of this world that they cannot focus on faith. They cannot focus on the Lord. These cares are more sinister than the kudzu vine. They choke out our faith. The second thing that Jesus warns about is the deceitfulness of riches. To be deceived means to be seduced. And that's exactly what the love of wealth and comfort can do to us. You might remember in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, Paul warns, not to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. I love how Bible commentator G. Campbell Morgan puts it. He wrote that, the persecute, that persecution is Satan's second best weapon. His first is materialism. We love our comfort, don't we? We love our convenience in the United States. We are a wealthy, wealthy country. And as a result, 
the deceitfulness of riches can easily seduce us and choke out the word of God. And then the third thing that Jesus listed is the desires for other things. In case, in case you don't get it, when the cares of the world or, or the deceitfulness of riches, Jesus throws it out there, the, the desire for other things. The phrase desire for other things uh, can be translated lusting for all the rest. All the rest. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke puts it this way, the pleasures of life. The pleasures of life are what can choke out the word of God in our life. God's word cannot thrive and survive when our hearts are hindered, when we are consistently distracted from the truth by the stuff of life, eventually we will depart the truth. If we're caught up in the ways of the world, the word will be choked up. When we have a hindered heart, there will be no harvest. But thankfully, thankfully, Jesus gets to the fourth point, the good stuff. The fourth heart condition is the humble heart. There's only one kind of soil in Jesus' parable that produces a lasting crop, and that's seen in verse 8. Jesus says, The other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The good ground was not hard or hollow or hindered. If a farmer during that day, in Jesus' day, had a harvest that was seven times what was sown, it would be called a good crop. And so to have a, a yield 30 or 60 or 100 times would be astonishing, unthinkable, even miraculous. And so you see what Jesus is doing here? He's using a vast overstatement to make his point. When the soil is good, miraculous things happen. Amazing things happen. I want you to see the, the four words in the text that show a continuous kind of action happening. He says, produced, growing, increasing, yielding. Do you get the picture there? Good stuff is happening. It's happening because the soil is good and the seed is good and the sower has implanted the seed and everything is just right. Because when the seed of the gospel gets into our heart, amazing growth will happen. Do you long for that in your life? Do you long to see God do amazing things? Then tend to your soil. Tend to your heart. I like to picture Jesus smiling when he kind of gives the explanation for this section down in verse 20. He says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The word good refers to that which is excellent and beautiful. Is your heart excellent and beautiful? Are you cultivating it? Are you pursuing the goodness of God in your life so that your soil is ready for God's seed to get in there and do amazing work? Humble-hearted people hear and accept and bear fruit. In Luke's version of this text, he says, they keep the word and bear fruit with patience. And so, the one with the good heart listens to the Lord, loves the Lord, and then lives out 
the Lord's working. Saving faith produces fruit. Jesus even said that. He said that in John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When we are faithful, we will be fruitful. Now as we wrap things up, I want to go back to verse 9, which we skipped. Jesus says, after he tells the first part of the parable, he says, he who has ears to hear let him hear. One of the keys to living the Christian life is to never stop listening to the Lord. Do we hear? Do we strive to hear? Do we listen to hear? If we do, then we will then heed. We will do what God says. To say it another way, if we're willing to love God, then we will listen to him. And so I want to just give you Four specific ways that you can both hear and heed. That you can both hear and act. The first one is this. You must trust the word of God to produce lasting growth. You got to trust God's word. When you speak to those around you, your friends, your family, those around you that don't know Jesus, make sure to continuously sow God's word into their hearts. Don't sow your own thoughts your political perspectives, your personal opinions, and your ideas. Instead, implant God's word. Trust God's word to do what only it can do. Secondly, I'm just reminded that it's a bit scary to sow seed sometimes. That's just the truth. You know, when the farmer sows seed, he's putting grain into the ground that he could use to feed his family. He's doing that in faith because farmers know what it means to live by faith. And faith always involves a bit of risk. And risk is a bit scary. And so we must trust God during this process of sowing seed in other people. We're fearful of it. And by the way, who is the author of fear? Satan. He wants you to be afraid to speak God's word to the people around you. He wants you to be fearful and anxious and worried that you might offend someone. God's word is living and powerful. And our role is just to serve it out, to plant it, to share it. Third, just remember this, a small percentage of what is planted actually grows to maturity. If we use the percentage from our parable, only 25%, right? One in four bear fruit. But that's okay. That, that's kind of discouraging, isn't it? That's not a great rate of return, 25%. But don't despair. Just keep sowing because that's God's plan for his people to sow words of truth into the world. God doesn't have any other plan. He has you. Imagine that. You are his plan. That's both scary and humbling at the same time, isn't it? Oh my goodness. And then finally, just remember this. Not all believers are going to bear the same amount of fruit. We'll all bear some, but we don't have to worry about, oh, that person, they're so much more effective or better at than I am. We don't have to worry about that. At the same time, we don't get to coast either. We have some responsibility 
to sow seed. The key is to willingly use what you've been given for God's glory. Are you willing to use whatever God's given you for his glory? In 1912, a man by the name of Dr. William Leslie, he was a medical missionary, and he went to live and minister to the tribal people in a very remote corner of the Republic of Congo. After 17 years there in the jungle, in the bush, he returned to the United States a discouraged and defeated man. He believed that he had failed to make any impact for Christ in the 17 years that he spent in the Congo. And just a few years after he returned to the United States, he died. But in 2010, that's almost 100 years later, in 2010, a team of missionary anthropologists made a very surprising discovery. They found an entire network of reproducing churches hidden. They were hidden like glittering diamonds in the dense jungle across the Kwailu River from Vanga. That was the very area where Dr. Leslie had spent his time almost a century before. Now, based on some initial previous research, these missionary researchers thought that these people, they're called the Yancey people in this remote area, they thought they might have some exposure to the name of Jesus. But they certainly didn't think that they would have a complete understanding of who he really was. But they were completely blown away, completely unprepared for what they found there. Listen to this. When we got in there, we found nearly a dozen reproducing churches throughout the jungle, scattered across a 37-mile area. Each village had its own gospel choir, although they didn't call it that. They wrote their own songs of faith, and they would have sing-offs from village to village. The researchers also discovered a 1,000-seat stone cathedral where these village churches would gather together and mass from time to time with many of the people walking 20, 30, 40 miles to attend these gatherings. The researchers learned that Dr. Leslie had traveled throughout this remote region teaching the Bible and promoting literacy. He also started the first organized educational system in these villages. Now, for 17 years... For 17 years, the doctor fought tropical illnesses, charging buffaloes, armies of giant ants, leopard-infested jungles to bring the gospel into a very remote area. He died. He died feeling like he had failed. But instead, his faithfulness and courage had left behind a powerful legacy of vital churches that Dr. Leslie never even knew about. Folks, when the seed of the gospel gets into our heart, amazing growth will happen. This parable, though, this parable of Jesus must ultimately become personal for you and for me. It's interesting that each of the four soil types hear the word. In the first instance, the seed fell among the trampled trail. In the second, it fell on the rocky ground. In the third, the seed settled among the thorns. But in the fourth, in the fourth, the seed went into 
the good seed, the good soil. It went into the soil. And so, how about you? Is God's word getting into your life? Is it penetrating your heart? Penetrating your soil? I hope so. And the next question we have to ask then is, if so, then what are you doing? What are you doing to produce fruit? The parable of the soil. Seeds, soil, and success. Real success comes when God's word enters our heart and we listen to him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you